0: Mystery Bookshop presents A Conversation with Sophie Hannah. Sophie Hannah is a Sunday Times and New York Times best-selling writer of crime fiction, published in 49 languages and 51 territories. Her books have sold millions of copies worldwide. In 2014 with the blessing of Agatha Christie's family and estate, Sophie published a new Poirot novel, The Monogram Murders, which was a bestseller in more than 15 countries. She has since published three more Poirot novels, Closed Casket, The Mystery of Three Quarters, and The Killings at Kingfisher Hill, all of which were instant Sunday Times top 10 bestsellers. In 2013, Sophie's novel, The Carrier, won the Crime Thriller of the Year Award at the National Book Awards. She has also published three short story collections and many poetry collections, one of which, Pessimism for Beginners, was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Award. Her poetry is studied in schools across the United Kingdom. In 2018, she published a self-help book called How to Hold a Grudge, From Resentment to Contentment. Sophie helped to create a master's degree in crime and thriller writing at the University of Cambridge for which she is the main teacher and course director. And she is also the founder of the Dream Author Coaching Program for Writers. She lives with her husband, children and dog in Cambridge where she is an honorary fellow of Lucy Cavendish College. Sophie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's my my particular pleasure because I've been I've been reading the Poirot novels and this gave me an opportunity to look look at your previous works and there is so much to unpack.' You're, you're like a writerly onion. Because <laughs> you've published several. I've several never stories.
1: been called an onion. Well, I have been called an onion but not a writerly onion. We have an expression <laughs> in our family if someone's being silly,
0: we call them a funny onion.
1: Oh. Um,
0: but I've never been called a writerly onion before. Well, you just kind of remind me of, of writers like Anthony Burgess, who you look at their list, they have so many things they've done in so many different categories because you've yeah. written poetry, self-help, you're running your teaching programs, you have standalone mystery thrillers, your, um, your series as well, and of course the Poirot novels. And I find most fascinating when I was doing the research that, that the majority of this was produced after you had your baby at uh, 31, is, is I understand yeah, that for, yeah well
1: I mean I'd been writing pretty much constantly my whole life so even before I had children I'd been writing uh, but it just so happened that when I had my first baby that was when I had my f- idea for a first crime novel which was actually about a newborn baby so there was definitely a connection there and then that was when my career sort of first really took off as a novel writer yeah. was yeah when I had two two kids under three yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was busy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's sort of a relatively short period of time you've put out. You've become a very productive and prolific writer as well. Um, the one, first thing we will want to start with is the thing I'm afraid I know the least about, which is your Simon Waterhouse and Charlie Zayer mystery thriller series. Yeah. Uh, what can you tell our, tell our readers about it?
1: Uh, so there are 10 books in the series. They are set in a fictional English county called the Culver Valley. Uh, Simon Waterhouse is a brilliantly clever detective who um, has a very unusual personality. I'm not going to describe how he has an unusual personality because... It's um, not in any of the ways you might expect. He's not a sort of hard drinking, divorced womanizer that everyone's so used to meeting in crime fiction. He's just a genuinely strange guy, Um, but a brilliant detective. Um, And Charlie Zayla is, well, at the beginning of the series, she's his colleague. Their relationship develops in various ways after that. Um, and then there's a team of other detectives who who are involved as well. So they're my sort of regular series characters, and um, there have been ten novels so far, and I'm writing the eleventh at the moment.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's the kind of thing, kind of story where they they still follow in the say the psychological thriller type of genre, the type as opposed to oh uh, like Peter Lovesey, um, uh, some of the other English writers. They tend to focus more on, I don't want to say more on the case themselves. I'm being sounding very ignorant here, for which I apologize, but I wanted to try to get a get a better understanding for readers that it's more like this than like that. Yeah, So,
1: so they are psychological thrillers mm-hmm. that have an element of police procedural. In each book, there is half of the narration is in the first person from the point of view of the protagonist who is unique to that book. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, they feel like psychological thrillers because each one has a first-person narrator or it's always a woman and that narrator is always unique to that book and the person whose life is being affected by the crime, whatever it is, or by the mystery. But then those chapters are interspersed with more traditional sort of police procedural style chapters. So they feel like psychological thrillers, basically, but they do have my, my sort of regular police team who are main characters as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I think what kind of confused me is that I saw them listed on some places as your uh, Waterhouse in Zaylor and then Culver Valley as well and I didn't quite grasp in time that it was actually the same series it's the same series yeah. yeah yeah it's sort of like um there's the um some New York there's a New York police series and again I'm blanking out and it's sort of like again you have a multiple cast of characters and it's kind of like whoever depends what the needs of the story comes up with that that you tend to focus on them
1: exactly yeah
0: yeah okay so then it, it's and that is um i think that's the kind of thing the the the, narr- the notion of the your focus on the psychological aspects is yeah. kind of runs like a thread through all your works yeah uh, particularly the element of of obsession which okay. as i started to read your i read some of your short stories yeah, and going through the the the, the Poirots and then some of your the, the nonfiction that you've written, including how to hold a grudge, about which I want to <laughs> talk about later. Um, obsession is a very strong thread and a very strong motivating force, and I'm not used to actually encountering that in the type of mystery reading that I do. I find that fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you're you're quite right to say that I am very very interested in obsession and psychology. So. Um, whatever kind of book I'm writing, I'm always interested in people and the way their minds work and what makes them tick. So that's the sort of psychology thing, I guess. Uh, and obviously, one of my biggest influences is Agatha Christie. She was fascinated by people and human behaviour. But obsession. It's interesting that you say that's in a lot of my books, because when you say it, I can see that it's true. But I don't think I particularly notice that because I think I am just naturally quite an obsessive person. So I guess the obsessiveness just automatically goes into my characters and my writing because I'm obsessive.
0: It seems like it's a very wonderful motivating force because an obsessive person, and I'm, I, I'm thinking of Beth in your in your latest book. Um, yeah, she's very obsessive. And it's the kind of thing that I recoil against because I think I, I've, I have my obsessive elements, but I tend to keep them well restrained. And I see Beth... Um, and again, we're going to jump around here because you start with with amazing premise for perfect little children about a woman Beth who sees her estranged friend with two children that she knows she has, except that they appear not, they're 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 called by the same names, but they have not grown up in 12 years. And it just her, her quest to find out what the truth of that was just puts her in all kinds of situations. And of course, I'm reading through the pages and I'm inwardly cringing as I'm, as I'm reading. And that's where, that's me. <laughs> but why the- why are you cringing? I, I think it's an embarrassment thing. Right. I am very much, uh, very much averse to embarrassment. And it's one <laughs> reason why, for example, like the Office series, the UK version of the Office, I think I was able to get about three minutes into it. and there's just things happening and it's just like oh it's it's a scratching on my soul but this is this is what really drives your novels it's it's a very strong emotional power and in the poirots for example as well it's i think it's marvelous I, i i don't think i've actually seen that kind of of use put to it um in um oh the the third book i'm sorry i'm blanking out again um uh oh no your fourth book killings at king no not killings it, killings it kills. Yeah, um that,
1: yeah, that's the fourth one, yeah.
0: Closed casket, of course. It's a very strong force. And it's just wonderful how how it how it powers the novel, how it powers the motivation behind uh the events of the book. Yeah. Um let's see. In fact, we can um as a matter of fact, for we're talking about the the Poirot's. Um, you had stressed in the past that these are continuation novels. Why, yes. why do you insist on that?
1: Uh, because I think a lot of people don't know what to call books like this. You know, when, when a, a writer writes a book that is featuring and starring a character created by another writer, so obviously Agatha Christie created Poirot, I'm writing new books featuring Poirot, but I'm not Agatha Christie, and I'm writing the books for the people who love Agatha Christie and Poirot and want more Poirot novels, and... Um, the, the term that I used to describe that, I mean, I didn't invent it, this was what I heard it defined as was continuation novels, where one writer takes a character created by a writer who is no longer with us and continues that character in new books. Um, and people don't really know what to call books like that. So um, I think it's quite important to, to kind of embrace it as a genre, because a lot of people are quite snobby about continuation novels. They think that they're somehow not quite as legitimate or valid as novels where the writer has invented absolutely everything themselves. Um, And so I personally think continuation novels are just like any other novels in that they might be good, they might be bad, but the fact of them being continuation novels doesn't in any way make them inherently worse. Um, So I'm quite proud to be writing continuation novels. I think it's a great honour to be continuing one of Agatha's characters. Um, And so I like to sort of proudly say that that is the genre that my Poirot novels are in.
0: Mm -hmm. And I fully, I fully agree with that. I would like to see the new material and uh, judge it for its own, uh, on its own, on its own terms, rather than thinking, oh, just be, it's like James N. Kane talking about when was asked if Hollywood had ruined his books. And he said, no, they're, they're right on the shelf. exactly exactly they don't don't change I saw this first with uh, the Dorothy Sayers continuation novels by Jill Patton Walsh and I I enjoyed them very much yeah they're fantastic yeah yeah Jill Patton Walsh was a great writer yeah yeah and it was it was wonderful because she knew Dorothy Sayers and was able to have some idea of her work and she was able to actually bring out like Thrones and Dominations yeah which uh she had written like eight chapters for I believe and Jill Uh, help finish it out and flesh it out at the end and i thought it was perfectly perfectly fine for what it is yeah
1: and jill because i i knew jill she was a friend of mine um yeah she sadly died um i think last year but um she was always very proud of the fact that nobody ever knew she never told anyone and nobody ever guessed where the join was you know where dorothy l sayer's writing stopped and hers began she was always very proud of the fact that she'd never told anyone and nobody had ever worked it out. (laughs)
0: Um, I've also been reading uh, just recently, uh, David Suchet's memoirs about, about being Poirot, how much um, he, he was of course very, but he's very meticulous about it uh, going through the books and pulling that, how much work did you feel you had to do or how much, uh, how was your experience um, dealing with the character?
1: Well, it didn't. It didn't feel like work. What I basically did, I'd already read all of Agatha's Poirot novels many times. I just reread them all, and pe- you know, I think when you know you're going to be writing that character, your rereading experience is inevitably different. I just reread them all. I rewatched all the David Suchet TV versions, and and that was my homework. And after that, I felt ready to to take the plunge.
0: Mm-hmm. I understand also that the series that you're writing takes place during a specific period in Poirot's life. Why is that?
1: It's because when we were trying to, when the Christie family and Harper Collins and I were having discussions about when my Poirot novel should be set, and at that point we only knew there was going to be one. We didn't know it was going to carry on as a series. There were lots of discussions about when should we set it. Obviously, Poirot dies in the last book that Agatha wrote about him, Curtain. So we certainly weren't planning to bring him back to life. There was some talk of of my Poirot novel being a prequel. So in other words, taking place before the mysterious affair at Stiles. Um, But that didn't feel right either because the mysterious affair at Stiles is the first Poirot novel. Everyone knows it is, and it should remain so. Um, And then the editor at HarperCollins, David Braun, who is Agatha's publisher and has been for many years. He said, hang on a minute, there's a gap in the Poirot timeline between 1928 and 1932. So in other words, between The Mystery of the Blue Train and Peril at End House, Agatha did not write any Poirot novels during that period. Um, And that felt like a very good, convenient slot to slot my book in. Um, And it just felt like it worked really well. So then after that, when I, you know, when they asked me to write more. We just decided that that was where they were going to be. So, however many Poirot novels I end up writing, they will all be set between nineteen twenty-eight and nineteen thirty-two. Oh,
0: sort of um, like, like the, yeah. Miss, the setting the Miss Marple uh, TV shows at the various times as well. They they would always set up uh, the second one was set in the mid fifties, early fifties, I think, or yeah, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah well it certainly means that you'll be consistent with the historical details so you don't have to worry about trying to jump to a new era to 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 set it in the the 50s or this or uh, some other period as well
1: yeah exactly and also that is kind of peak poirot time you know mm-hmm. late 20s early 30s that, that, i think of that as you know the sort of golden age of poirot when he was absolutely at his best so i'm quite pleased to be able to to set it set my books then
0: Mm hmm. Well, I think well, the other thing I love about your work um, is how much you, you come up with what I think of as bonkers premises. <laughs> most uh, mystery, most mystery novels, they start with, say, the the, the body or uh, you read some of like P.G. James's work and she uh, uh, goes into the characters, goes into the psychology. You find the body. Time to call an Adam Dowglish. But you start off with some amazing uh, um compromises that just seem like how in the heck did this happen <laughs> um the last poirot book the killings at kingfisher hill poirot's asked to solve a murder in which there's already a confession as the hanging approaches and he's on a bus ride with catchpool and and they meet this woman who says that if i sit in a certain seat on the bus i will be killed a man has warned me about this and it's just I don't know what to say. It's just sort of, this is just like, you just come up with, and you have all these premises, I think starting with your uh, first thriller, as a matter of fact, about a baby that the mother decides this baby has been switched.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, All of my books, but it's because, I mean, I have always loved books that have a really ambitious, outlandish, impossible-seeming mystery that kicks them off. Right as a starting point because my main interest and enthusiasm as a writer and reader of crime fiction is in the mystery element. I'm not particularly interested in crime, it's mystery that I'm interested in. And I've always found that if the mystery is really kind of out there and the reader can't even begin to speculate as to what the explanation might be, Mm -hmm. it's more mysterious. Because if you have a crime novel that begins with a dead body being found, for example, you may not know exactly why that person got murdered, but you can imagine some possible scenarios, you know, maybe his wife killed him because he was having an affair, or maybe his lover killed him because he was blackmailing her, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things it could well be. I really love crime novels that start with a premise that's so mysterious and weird that if a reader were to try and speculate, they wouldn't be able to come up with a single theory. And that's when you've really got them. Uh, Mm. Because I know this as a reader, like when I can't even begin to speculate, that's when I have to know. Because Mm. there's part of my brain that thinks, I just can't imagine any explanation for this. Then you have to read and find out that there is one.
0: Well, that makes it a very high wire act on your part. Do you sometimes feel sometimes in a book that you're thinking, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to get out of this. Do you write yourself into a corner?
1: No, I never, I never allow myself to start writing until I know that I've got enough components of the plot. And in the, you know, if you start with a really ambitious mystery, there's a chance, there's a danger that you won't have a perfect solution for it. So I don't want to spend months writing something and then having to give up on it. So I always do enough kind of mulling over and thinking and eventually quite detailed planning. And it's only when I know that I've got an ending that's as good as the beginning that I start writing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And uh, you 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 have a plot along the way. So you kind of know your, your way stations.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I,
0: I contrast that with Lawrence Block who has written numerous books throughout a long career and he is apparently a, entirely a writer who writes by the seat of his pants and as a result he really? probably has an equal number of m- busted manuscripts
1: yeah yeah I, well. I just I, cu- I couldn't bear the thought of starting writing something all enthusiastic and then going oh well i guess i haven't got an ending so <laughs> giving up <laughs> well, also, the- also the long the longer i do it the longer i the more experience i have the more I just trust that if I've got a question at the beginning, if I've got a premise that I love enough, I don't doubt that I will come up with a solution, even if at first I can't think of one, even if at first I can think of one and it's not good enough. I mean, that's what happened with perfect little children.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, I, I have the amazing premise, this woman sees these children that haven't grown or aged, in 12 years they're still five and three years old as they were when she saw them 12 years ago so that's an impossible like it's impossible children do grow we all know this so what's going on um and I had a solution to the mystery but I just wasn't happy with it because it just didn't feel like high impact high octane and the beginning is really high octane so I was kind of thinking. I know it's this isn't going to be the ending it was just kind of like a placeholder ending and then one day i just thought of a much more amazing ending i was like aha that's it but i now just trust that the right ending will come when i need it
0: Mm -hmm. i think i liked about it most about the about the book is how it ends in which um there is some win there's some loss as well it's it's not a perfect it's not a perfect solution like Um, like what we like fiction, like some people like fiction to be where, where the the good guys lose or the the good guys win, the bad guys lose. Um, It's kind of like you, you do have successes, but at the same time, there's always a price to be paid for investigating, you know, changing, um, uh, changing what's the status quo. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah. totally. Totally. And, um, you know, I think, I think there's kind of a a balance that you need to think about in terms of the structure because if your opening mystery is a more more sort of ordinary everyday one like a police detective finds a dead body and Mm -hmm. has to work out who killed the dead body that's a very ordinary premise it's like police actually have that situation all the time and so in that kind of book a properly balanced ending might be something like you know, Peter killed the victim because the victim was blackmailing Peter, that would be fine. But for a book that begins with a woman saying, these children haven't grown in 12 years, what's going on? You need something to balance that out. So the ending can't be more sort of low key or ordinary than the, than the initial premise. Otherwise, the whole thing feels kind of badly put together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's still some things, still some Minor, some questions left open as well, which I can't get into without giving the game away. But you, you wonder yeah. if there's going to be some kinds of reconciliation going on, but you just, yeah, you just don't know. There, that's what the characters will find out.
1: Yeah, well, well, again, that's deliberate. I mean, in all my books, I like to, I, I, I regard there as being some rules of crime fiction that that I don't want to break. <laughs> like the main mystery that you set up, you have to solve. Yeah. So the main mystery in Perfect Little Children is. What? how is it possible that she's seen these children who haven't grown in 12 years when we know that that's not possible? And yet that is what she saw. She knows what she saw. Um, so I have to answer that question because that's what the book is all about. But I never like to tie up every single thing that a reader might wonder about. So I like to solve the central uh, mystery, mm-hmm. but I like there to be questions that the reader can speculate about exactly in the way that in real life, you know, in real life, we never have a situation where we go, now I've got the answer and I know everything for sure. Like just never happens. So you want the reader to be able to speculate in a kind of ethical way, just as if it were real people that they know while having the main mystery totally solved.
0: Yeah. And that is totally in line with how people think, because if they have a particular narrative in their head, it's gonna take a lot to shift them from that.
1: Yeah, and that's, exactly. that's, that's
0: what happens in the end with some of the characters, they've been fed a narrative and they believe that that's what it's about. And they just, in whether or not you can shift it, well, maybe you can, maybe not. Exactly. Um, there is a question I wanna ask. Uh, this is something my, my wife who also writes and I have talked about from time to time. Do your, do your characters talk to you when you're not at the keyboard? They don't talk
1: to me. I'm, I'm not one of these writers who says things like the characters just come to life and take over. I'm always aware that they're characters that I've invented. Um, but I think it might just be I just have a different way of thinking of it. If I'm in the middle of writing a book, particularly the first draft, the book and the characters and the situations do kind of fill my head in a fairly obsessive way. But I just wouldn't call it my characters talking to me. I would just call it like the book kind of becomes all consuming. And I can easily, I mean, I remember when my daughter was little, I set off to drive her to her kindergarten place. And I started thinking about my plot. And I was like, okay, so this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And then I got back home all ready to start. Because I was thinking about it because I knew that once I dropped her off, I was going to start work for the day. And I pulled up outside the house. I was like, "Okay, going to go in and start writing all this stuff. I've been thinking about this little voice from the backseat goes, Mummy, you forgot to drop me off. And I'd just driven past the kindergarten and back home. And I was so wrapped up in my plot, I'd forgotten to stop and take my daughter into the building. I I think that's probably the most distracted I've ever been
0: that that's that is very funny and and yes and there, there's no right answer to that because my my wife had looked at me one day and, and asked me that very question and all i could think of all i could say is no i have to sit down and write that's when they talk and she said they're, they're in my head they're telling me what what they should be doing or what or what they feel and it's that's sort of when i realized that there's many methods of creativity and yeah. there's just just no one right way to do it yeah um, exactly. Uh, i want to go on just briefly to the to the book how to hold a grudge because i really do want to let you know i've spent a life reading self-help books i guess that's oh, really? that is my me obsessiveness sure. from you know from uh, norman vincent peel on up and there's various books in my life that um that have really meant something to me um yeah. even if it's just simple know, li- simple books like feel the fear and do it anyway which is which was, Another one that has done that, but how you reframe grudges as an actual positive experience. When I started reading it, I'm going, okay, yeah, okay, I, I, you're taking the piss, obviously. But <laughs> as you were going on and giving, giving examples, I realized you were serious about it. And also, it's all right to feel this way about people you love.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's all right to feel that way about people you love. It's all right to feel that way about people you dislike. I mean, the thing is, it's so interesting. I was having lunch with a friend today because in England, when we're recording this, it's actually half past 11 at night. So it's the end of my day. And today I had lunch with a friend and um, I was telling her about some something that an ex-friend of mine had done to me that that was just like shocking. This, this ex-friend who is now very much no longer a friend, she just behaved shockingly. So I was having lunch with this other friend and I hadn't seen her for a while. So she asked about this friend and I was like, well, she's not a friend anymore. And I told her the story and she said, that is so shocking. Then she said, you know, she said, I don't hold grudges against many people, but there are three people in my life who I will never forgive because what they did to me was so bad. And she very quickly told me the three stories. And as I was, and she's a you know, a really kind, compassionate, forgiving person. But as I was listening to her, I just thought, you know, we spend so much energy, we expend so much energy telling ourselves that we should forgive and we should always be forgiving and that's the right thing to do. But if you look at the reality, the reality is that when people treat us, not just sort of minorly badly, but when people treat us extraordinarily badly, it really can hurt and feel like an attack and to then sort of have pressure usually from ourselves because of what we've learned about how great it is to forgive the pressure immediately starts up like I'd better forgive them I'd better not hang on to negative feelings and you end up creating a whole load more negative feelings and negative judgments on yourself and certainly what I've found is that I feel so much better if I just go yeah I'm angry Mm -hmm. I don't think the same way about that person I don't feel the same way about them and that is okay Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and I'm going to validate my own judgment and feelings and I'm going to allow myself to feel this way without deciding it's a problem for as long as I need to feel this way and when you kind of give yourself that permission to hold a grudge what actually happens is that the negative feelings pass through your system much more quickly. Whereas whenever, when you're sort of saying to yourself, mustn't hold a grudge, mustn't hold a grudge, must be Christian and forgiving, that's when the, the sort of wronged feeling inside you digs in and goes, actually I'm not going anywhere I have every right to be here and then your negative feelings get much stronger and you find it harder to forgive the person so as I say in my book how to hold a grudge I actually believe that holding grudges in the right way enables us to be more forgiving ultimately Mm -hmm. because we don't have to you know we don't have that initial resistance to the idea that we're allowed to be annoyed.
0: But also that it allows you to accept that person for what they are, but also impose limits to realize, Ooh. oh, I should never loan money to this person; he's never going to pay it back. Therefore, but I can still enjoy enjoy yeah. company with them.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, um, I also want to get into a little bit you because you were also involved with your with uh, Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education, and also you have a Dream Author Coaching Program. Yeah. Is, is, is actually quite fascinating. Um, is that also sort of part, is this all kind of like you wrote the self-help books, including one on happiness, which I have not, not gotten yet. Um, but is all this part of you know, the writer coaching program, is this all part of this kind of desire to, um, I guess, share what you know, share what you've learned?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's several different strands. So the, the teaching at Cambridge University, um, that came about through a conversation with a friend who was already teaching at Cambridge University. And she said, you know, would you fancy coming and doing the odd thing? And I said, well, I wouldn't mind teaching crime writing if there's any need for that. And she her eyes lit up and she said, oh, why don't you create a crime writing master's programme? And um, it, she told me it was going to be If I did do that, then I'd be teaching it in this beautiful building in a village outside Cambridge. I was like, yes, I'm in. So that sort of developed from that dream author developed from just the fact that I've been helping writers to sort of feel happier and create the success they want to create with their writing. I've been doing it kind of unofficially for a long time. And then I was a member of a coaching program because I love self-help. So I joined this coaching program as a as a client. And it had massively changed and improved my life. So then I thought, right, what if I put together all this coaching stuff that I'm interested in with the help that I'm giving to writers anyway? So I created this membership programme uh, and it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's growing at such a rate and writers who are in the programme are achieving amazing things. Just today, I heard that one of my, my dream authors, as I call them, has just signed a major deal with Netflix Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, and and, you know, another one recently got a deal for, you know, multiple six figures after an auction. And um, so I can see how they're benefiting from the coaching. And uh, yeah, it's really exciting.
0: Well, it certainly is a uh, very good credibility for the program because I've seen there's a number of programs out there and you kind of always look at, okay, who went through, the, who recommends that program and what is their success has been. So that is very validating for, for your approach. And it sounds like it's not just uh, skills that you're teaching, no. but also the mental, the mental health skills needed to persevere in this profession.
1: Yeah. It's all about the psychology and the emotional side and, you know, how to sustain a long and happy and successful writing career, um, and how to how to basically stop thinking about your writing and your writing ambitions in a way that discourages you and instead start thinking about them in a way that encourages you, so that you're then able to take the action you need to in order to create the success you want.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And if anybody's interested in that, I, I see that the URL for that is dreamauthorcoaching.com. It's worth uh, worth checking out. Uh, one, Just one more question. Um, well, actually, just a couple more and we'll wrap this up. Um, I wanted to ask about your you you were a successful writer before you embarked on the Poirot. I mean, you were on the bestseller list. You had two of your novels made into uh, programs by ITV. Um, is has, has there been any difference in your personal and work life after word got out that you're going to be following up with the uh, one of the most popular iconic detective characters in the world do you see your life now as like bp and ap before poirot and after
1: that's a really interesting question i don't think anyone's asked me that before um not really i mean the the first poirot novel was a huge news story all over the world and you know it was published in something like 45 no actually i know it was published in 51 countries so it was a huge sort of global big deal and a bestseller in many countries so that was a kind of fairly standout moment but no i don't really feel it's a before and after the before and after really for me in terms of my writing career was before my first crime novel little face became a runaway bestseller that no one expected it to be like no one thought in advance, this book's going to be a bestseller. It just took off through word of mouth. That for me was the moment when everything really changed much more than the Poirot. I mean, that the Poirot was like an amazing thing, but I was, as you say, I was already successful and established. Uh, But before my first crime novel, Little Face became a sort of word of mouth success, um, I, I wasn't, known at all as a novelist and if if that hadn't happened you know if Little Face hadn't sold as well as it did um, I may well not have become a successful writer because it was that book that was like my breakthrough book and then after that everybody knew who I was and then it's very easy to remain a bestseller well it's not easy but like it's much easier if you're already a bestseller because then you get you know bookshop space and supermarket space and people talk about your books and you just have that attention already um so yeah so that was for me the moment that felt like the landmark
0: moment Mm -hmm. that's excellent um what can we expect from uh sophie uh coming up this year anything uh this year yes well
1: perfect little children has just come out in um the second of its three formats so not hardcover and not mass market paperback but trade
0: paperback trade
1: paperback it's just come out in trade paperback today in fact and the killings at kingfisher hill my fourth poirot novel will also be out in paperback i think may or june and then next year my new psychological thriller is coming out it's called the couple at the table and it starts with a murder at an exclusive couples only resort and a woman on her honeymoon with her husband is murdered. And the only people who could have done it, the only person who could have done it is somebody who's in that resort at the time. And everybody in that resort at the time couldn't possibly have done it. So it's kind of a bit like a locked room mystery. Mm-hmm. Nobody, the police find that nobody could have done it and yet somebody must have because she ended up dead.
0: Mm-hmm. That's in the the Waterhouse series too, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. Okay. And if uh, readers want to find out more about your books, where can they go?
1: Sophiehanna.com.
0: Okay. And you have a newsletter as well, don't you?
1: Yeah. So on the homepage of sophiehanna.com at the bottom, you can sign up to receive the newsletter with lots of the newsletter always have lots of lots of giveaways and free goodies and things like that.
0: Yes. In fact, you you talked about the couple at the table and even ran a little contest for it as well. It was was a fun fun. competition that was. That was very, very nice. Well, Sophie, thank you very much for, I hope it's not too late for you. Um, it's, it's 640 over here in the, in the Eastern side of the US. So, But thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us at the Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me on.
0: Absolutely. And this is Bill Peschel for the Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop. And I just hope that the next favorite book is the book that you're reading right now. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. The Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents podcast is sponsored by the Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. The store is open with limited hours, plus we accept appointments and offer a drive-by service. The store will also ship books to your home, including those from the Peschel Press Mystery line, including our annotated editions of novels by Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers. To learn more, visit the store at www.mysterybooksonline.com.